But let's go to Psalm 50, unless uh, if you're not already there. And we will read this together and see what the Lord uh, says through, the, through His Word. Psalm 50, this is the Word of the Lord. A Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the Lord and its fullness are mine. For the world, I'm sorry, and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray once more. Lord, my plea is that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight and that your people, your beloved sheep, would be nourished and edified by it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I read this passage, and maybe you did the same, maybe you do the same thing, and I think it's appropriate because I think it's what the psalm, the psalmist Asaph is aiming at. I get this vivid picture in my mind, this vivid imagery of a courtroom. Is that is that what is that what y'all got? And if if not, think of it that way. When don't think of it now. Listen to me. But when you when you go when you go home. Think of it that way and see if you don't pick up on that. I think, I think that is what the, the picture that the psalmist is painting here. It's just a, a courtroom where this, you've got this judge and these witnesses. 
And when I read it, it's as if I hear, All rise, the honorable creator of the universe now calls this court to session. That's kind of what I hear in my mind. And this, this psalm opens with God making a summons really to every part of the earth. From the rising of the sun, the psalmist says, to its setting. So he is talking about every part of the earth that the sun touches. So summons everyone to hear his judgment, especially of his covenant people, Israel. And as we move along through this, we're going to see that Israel is divided in this judgment into two groups. And those two groups are those who keep the covenant or those who are faithful to the covenant and then those who break the covenant. But we're going to see that both of these groups are judged to be offering meaningless worship or meaningless service to God and it's because of a fundamental problem they share together. But before we hear this judgment of, this, of these two groups within Israel, this is one covenant people divided into two groups. Before we hear his judgment, Asaph describes the majesty of this judge as the court is called to order with its witnesses and with those being described, or tried rather. So let's, let's look at the majesty of the judge, which I, think I, I see in verse 1 through 3, and then verse 6. So Asaph opens with a triple descriptor of God, which in the original language, the Hebrew language, appears El, one word, Elohim, second word, Yahweh. El, Elohim, Yahweh. So those first two descriptors are just general names for God as the one true almighty God. El, Elohim is just the general words for God. But the third descriptor is the personal name of God revealed to Israel, his covenant people. So it's his covenant name to his covenant people. And that word is Yahweh, or it often appears in our Bibles as, in all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D. So El Elohim, the almighty creator has the authority to summons the whole earth to hear, his, uh, to hear His voice. And this El Elohim is also Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And that's why the psalmist then goes on to say, out of Zion, the radiant glory of God shines forth. Zion is another name for Israel. And it's, uh, it's actually... A way that uh, it's, it's the name of a town. It's the name of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem, this principal place of the worship of Israel, kind of becomes synonymous with who they are as a people. And they certainly are a, uh, a worshiping community. And so this is, this is an identifying out of Zion or out of Israel or out of Jerusalem, the radiant glory of God shines forth. So this is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, shining forth from His people. The Almighty God is also revealed as a devouring fire, right? And is surrounded by a mighty tempest. 
And when we hear that, we say, yeah, the Lord is a consuming fire. We may think of Hebrews or a mighty tempest. And we're like, yeah, we get the, uh, the poetic license that Asaph is taking here. But for Asaph to say to the people of God, a devouring fire or a mighty tempest, no Israelite would read or sing this psalm, which is very possible what they were doing is singing this psalm, without their mind immediately going to Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments. Because he came down on the mountain with consuming fire and peals of thunder. And so when these people are singing about God being surrounded with a consuming fire and a mighty tempest, they're immediately getting this picture of God as the giver of the covenant in the law of Moses. And then even talking about the radiance that shines forth through Jerusalem or through Zion brings to mind uh, Moses, whose face, when he spoke with God, they had to cover his face. Remember when he came down from the mountain because of the radiant glory of God that was shining off of his face. They were saying, look, to look into your face, we see the glory of God. And we're afraid that if we behold the glory of God, we're going to die. So veil your face. And so this imagery here of the covenant God of Israel as he hands down the covenant in the law of, of Moses is just being brought before the, the people of God. And, and that is declaring the majesty of this judge. And not only must those who are his covenant people declare his glory and power, and not only must the inhabitants from the rising of the sun till its setting heed his voice, but in verse 6, it says that all of heaven must declare the righteousness of this judge. Because it is God himself who is the judge. So all of heaven must declare the righteousness because God is the judge. So we see the majesty of this judge. This judge who summons heaven and earth into his courtroom is the glorious, terrifying creator of all the earth who has the right to call all of the inhabitants of the earth, including his covenant people, to court. And this is the... He is also the covenant God of Israel. And bringing that imagery of the covenant at Sinai, as I've said before, God's special people reminds them that even though they are being judged by God, this majestic, terrifying God, that they are still His covenant people. And then we see in verse, verses 4 and 5, the members of this court that God is calling in the session. They're named. The judge calls as a witness the heavens above. Those who are in the constant presence of the righteous judge beholding his radiant glory. And when we get a picture, when we kind of get the heavens scrolled back and we see these heavenly beings, the seraphim, in the radiant glory of God, we see him ascribing righteousness and glory to this God as they gaze upon him and cry. What do they cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he also calls to witness in this courtroom the earth beneath as a faithful witness in this court session. 
And then finally, God calls His covenant people to court in verse 5. He says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. But these covenant people are not called as witnesses, but they are called as the ones who are being judged. It is a call to the faithful ones or to those uh, to whom he has demonstrated his steadfast love and with whom he has made a covenant by sacrifice. It is this people who before heaven and earth will give an account for their faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so these, this is the, the court. You have the witnesses. And you have those being tried, the covenant people of God. And with that, being, that foundation being laid by the psalmist, we then see the judgment of the covenant keepers. Now he's called... Verse 5 shows that this court of judgment is with all of those that he has covenanted together with. My faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. But look, at, look down at verse 16. There's a contrast there and it says, But to the wicked, God says. And so that lets us know that God is judging those who are faithful to his covenant in, in this section, verses, and we'll see it'll be verses 7 through 15. And then, beginning in verse 16, he's going to judge the covenant breakers. So you've got, uh, you've got verse 7 talking about the covenant keepers, and then verse 16 transitions to those, to the wicked, to those who have broken his covenant. And verse 7 begins with, Hear, O my people. And again, the psalmist is just keen on this Mosaic covenant language. Hear, O my people. And this harkens back to what we call the Shema, uh, which is recited at the renewal of the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 6.4. So the covenant initially comes from Sinai and the Ten Commandments and an expansion. But then in Deuteronomy, you have a second reading just prior to them going into uh, the Promised Land. And, this, and right before this second reading, Deuteronomy means second law, the second reading of the law in 6.4, you hear these words, Hear, O Israel, or hear, O my people. And so the, immediately their minds are going back to God's judgment or God's giving of the covenant. And then God's judgment in verse 8 is not that His people were being unfaithful to the covenant by not offering sacrifices, but it was, it was that uh, because rather their sacrifices were continually before him. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are, are continually before me. So I'm not rebuking you for being unfaithful to the covenant. You, you continue to do your part. But they misunderstood what the sacrifices meant. This, this was the dilemma. And you look at it. Apparently, God's covenant people had come to think that they were supplying God with their sacrifices. I, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. Every beast is mine. The birds of the hills, all that moves. You think that you're giving me food to eat? Even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't eat the flesh of 
bulls or goats. You, 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 you think you're supplying me with something. They think that they're supplying God with their sacrifices. And this is a low view of God indeed. Somehow or another, the Israelites began to think that, that their service was meeting God's needs. They thought the consecration of their animals were providing God with livestock. They must have thought that their burnt offerings and sacrifices were offering to God some sustenance. And God rebukes them and reminds his people that they are not giving him anything because he already owns everything. Even if it were possible, God says, to get, to get hungry, he, he wouldn't need to ask them for food the psalmist goes on to show that, that uh, or God rather asking a rhetorical question to show the absurdity of their disposition as they keep these covenant requirements. Do you think God, who is spirit, eats flesh? You even hear the, you even kind of hear some sarcasm there being expressed by the psalmist. No, that is foolish and meaningless. Rather, offer to God. A meaningful sacrifice is the call. You, you come and think that you're giving me something? Well, that makes your offering, even though you're doing it, it makes it meaningless. And so verses 14 and 15 then give us what God sees as a meaningful sacrifice. So 7 through 13, they were doing these sacrifices, but they were meaningless. Verse 14 and 15, God shows us what a meaningful sacrifice looks like. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows. Now, I don't think that we, we can miss this because the meaningful sacrifice is still a sacrifice. So he's not saying, stop fulfilling the covenant. You're doing it wrong, so just don't do it at all. No, he's saying, no, still bring the sacrifice but bring it with thanksgiving. He's not calling for them to cease performing the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Rather, God is commanding them to offer the sacrifice, keyword with thanksgiving. You remember we heard that word twice when we read, uh, when we read our text. Offer the sacrifice with thanksgiving. Listen, here's the thing. Sacrifices were not ordained as a way for God to have his needs supplied, as the Israelites were thinking. Rather, and this is key, they were the means by which their sins were atoned. So God is reminding Israel that he doesn't need them, but they need him. You bring in your sacrifices thinking, I need you, but the fact is, these sacrifices were meant to remind you that you need me. They need, they need him to tell them how his justice against their sin can be appeased and how they can live in a manner pleasing to him. They need God to tell them that. And so he does tell them, and it's by bringing these atoning sacrifices in the, in the old covenant. So when they offer their sacrifices, they are doing what he has instructed them as it relates to the provision he has made for their sins. Do you see that? I hope so desperately that you get that. Therefore, when they bring their sacrifices to God, their hearts should be 
filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for his provision to atone for their sins. You're not bringing these to supply me livestock or to give me something to eat. When, when you are bringing the, these sacrifices, it is intended to remind you that this is a provision for your sins. And so if I have provided atonement for your sins, when you bring these sacrifices, you should be bringing them with thanksgiving. When they bring sacrifices, their hearts should be overwhelmed with the provision that God has made in the atonement sacrifice. Further, that heart of gratitude should fulfill them or rather should motivate them to fulfill their covenant commitment to God. That's what he says. He says, keep your vows, offer a sacrifice with thanksgiving, and perform your vows. So it should be a heart of overwhelming gratitude in worship, and it should be a heart of overwhelming gratitude in living their lives. They can fully expect God then to save them from their troubles when they call upon him. I don't think it's far-fetched to draw out a point of application here. And some of you may have already picked up on it. I hope you have. Because we are often like Israel in this regard, are we not? We often approach our worship or service to God with the attitude that we are giving God something He needs. When we serve Him, when we worship Him. Lord, if I'm not the one preaching, then you need me to preach. Otherwise, what's going to happen to your people? Right? Or Lord, if, I'm, if, I, if, if I don't fulfill this role, then, then, I, then something terrible is going to happen. We approach it like we, are, like we are offering God something He needs. We often think if we don't provide a certain service or do a certain thing, God is going to lack something vital to accomplish His redemptive purposes. However, we must remember, beloved, God has He has accomplished His redemptive purposes in Christ. Therefore, our worship is a reminder of that fact. Our worship is not supplying God something. It is a reminder of the fact that He has made provision for our sins. That's why our worship is Christ-centered. It's gospel-centered. That's why we make sure that our songs focus on Christ. We make sure that the songs preach the gospel. We make sure that the sermons are focused on Christ and that they preach the gospel because everything we do in our public worship services remind us that God has accomplished His purposes in Christ. We worship not because we are doing God a favor, but because we are overwhelmingly thankful for what God has done for us in Christ. Our service to God comes from the heart that is overflowing with thankfulness to God and what He has accomplished in Christ. You may think that that would give us, you may say, well, if all we're doing is being reminded, then we don't have the responsibility to do anything, right? We just sat here and we think, oh yeah, that was good, awesome. I am reminded of that now. Right? That isn't even, that's kind of illogical, isn't it? Let's just come together and let's just think, hmm, God has accomplished his redemptive purposes for me in Christ. Cool. Good to see you, brother. I'm going to go to Moe's. Right? That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't seem 
uh, that doesn't seem logical. No, because our hearts are overwhelmed with thanksgiving because of it. And so when we say Christ, our hope and life and death, our, our hearts are just overwhelmed by this. When we sing on Christ, the solid rock, we stand, our, the tears are flowing. Brenda's back there going, whoop, whoop. Uh, right? My, my hands are raised because Christ is God's means. I am reminded that God has made a way for my sins to be atoned. And it overwhelms my heart with thanksgiving. Also, in our, in our service, it doesn't give us an excuse to do nothing. Because of who God is, we're faith. We, we be faithful, right? Will God accomplish all His purposes? Of course He will. Indeed, He has at Calvary. And so that means I go forth with a heart of thanksgiving and I fulfill the role that God has commanded me to fulfill. Husband, wife, worker, father, child, and the list goes on and on. And I do it in a way that pleases Him and glorifies Him. Because my heart is filled with thankfulness. That means It also means that my worship and service isn't helping God along as if He needed me. And it also means that if I flub or do poorly, the whole enterprise isn't thrown in the dumpster. God has accomplished His work. And so this is me in my lame attempt to be faithful with a heart of thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, you may not know this about me, but I love to preach. <laughs> and, and so I'm not, I don't wake up on, on Sundays and I'm like, oh, me again? Why couldn't you have got Bradley? Why couldn't he have, I mean, just, just come home from vacation for one day and blah. No, that's not the way. No, my heart is overwhelmed. I get to serve the Lord in the way that he has gifted me to do this. It's not a drag for me. Right? It's, and, and, I, and I recognize the limits of my giftedness and abilities. I am under no delusions here, right? But, but at, the, at the same time, I want to be faithful to the Lord and the opportunity is, is given me. And I don't do it begrudgingly. No, I love to do it. And the reason why is because I am reminded that God has made provision for me in Christ. And out of a heart of gratitude, I want to serve Him. And not everyone serves Him in this way, but you serve Him in the way that He has called you to serve. Be that as a nurse, or as an IT person, or as a lawyer, or whatever that may be. You serve Him in all of these ways. And so you do it with a heart of gratitude and a heart of thankfulness. Even when those elementary children are just getting on your nerves, and maybe the parents even worse. But we do it with a heart of gratitude, right? Beloved, be faithful and worship and serve the Lord with a heart of gladness and thanksgiving because that is the way we serve the Lord, not meaningless, but meaningfully. In the next section, we see the judgment of covenant breakers. So they're under the covenant, but they're wicked. They're breaking the covenant. God judges those wicked people in the covenant community who despitefully break the covenant. And that's verses 16 through 21, but to the wicked. And see what right 
have you to recite my statutes. So they're reciting the statutes, you know, probably in public worship. They are reciting the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and they're going through the, the motions, but they're wicked. God says you have no right to do that because you demonstrate with your life and your hatred of God's discipline that you are disregarding the words that you are reciting in the covenant. You're just casting them. They're before you, you say them, and then you cast them behind your back and move on. The theme of the Mosaic Covenant even continues in this section of the psalm, just as it did in the previous verses. In this section, <clears throat> excuse me, especially verses 18 through 20, it appears to me that the psalmist has the Ten Commandments in mind. See if you can pick those up with me. They disregard the command, you shall not steal, because they are pleased with the company and action of thieves. They cast, you shall not commit adultery behind their backs when they keep company and are pleased with the action of the adulterers. Actions of the adulterers. They bear false witness and they say evil and deceitful things, even against their own siblings, right? So they're breaking that commandment of not bearing false witness. And even we might say, and I realize that this might be a little bit of a, stress, a stretch, but they dishonor their mother, their father and their mother, as they speak against their own siblings, their own brother, their mother's son, as the psalmist describes it. Those who kept the sacrifices in verses 7 through 15, they were offering meaningless service to God because they misunderstood the reason for the sacrifice. And similarly, these covenant breakers were muttering the recitations of the statutes and commandments of the covenant, but their speech and their lives revealed it was still meaningless because they were actually breaking the covenant. Both are meaningless. You are, uh, the covenant keepers were offering meaningless sacrifice and meaningless worship because they had a low view of God. They thought they were supplying something for God. And the wicked was, were also offering meaningless sacrifice and covenant service because they were living wrong. The wicked thought God's long-suffering and patience meant that he either approves of their actions, so he's not saying anything, he's not rebuking them because he's good with it. He's like, okay, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Or because he was indifferent towards them. He's not rebuking them because it just doesn't matter to him. So they can just keep the company of adulterers. They can, they can be pleased with the actions of thieves and everything is okay. God doesn't, God's not worried about that. But the judge states in verse 22 that he rebukes them. He does speak from heaven in verse 20, uh, 21. Rather. These things have I done I, I, and I have been silent. You have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you. So in verse 21, he does rebuke them and he brings the charge of their sins before them. I lay the charge before you. And verse 22 reveals with kind of a sentence, a conviction that lets you know that God is serious. Mark then 
You who forget God, lest I tear you apart. God's serious here. But before we move on to verse 22, I think that it's important to note that taking verse 12 and 13 with 21 shows us that both the covenant keepers and the covenant breakers are guilty of the same fundamental mistake. Let's look. 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And then verse 21. You thought I was one like yourself. Do you see what the fundamental mistake is? You think that you are supplying me something with with your offerings. You You have diminished me. And in verse 21, the covenant breakers think that the Lord is like them. They have diminished the Lord. Both groups, both the covenant keepers and the covenant breakers have a low view of God. This this is their fundamental problem. They both share a deficient theology. They share a low view of God. The covenant keepers think God needs them, while the covenant breakers think that God is like them. The low view of God held by the covenant keepers prevents them, listen, from worshiping rightly. The low view of God of the covenant keepers prevents them from worshiping rightly, while the deficient theology of the covenant breakers prevents them from living rightly. Beloved, I'm going to say something that may seem unpopular nowadays, but theology matters. And it affects how we live and how we worship. Here the off-quoted phrase from A.W. Tozer fits perfectly. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I get that there's kickback there. And you, you may think, you may say, well, I'm not going to worry about theology or doctrine. I'm just going to serve God. Well, It begs a question. I'm just going to serve God. That begs a question, doesn't it? Serve how? God who? How are you going to serve God? And which God are you talking about? Or you say, I'm not going to worry about theology or doctrine. I'm just going to love Jesus. And again, it begs the question, love how? How are you going to love Jesus? Just any old way you think? And Jesus who? There were, listen, there were a million Heshuas in Israel. There are a bunch of Jesuses nowadays. Not so much in America. So I want to ask the question, which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the Jesus of liberal theology? The Jesus who may or may not have bodily existed? The Jesus that may have just been some kind of phantom force? Which, I need to know which Jesus. And any time you start saying, serve how or love how, or God who or Jesus who, you know what you're doing? Theology! Theology matters. Listen, knowing the right things about God does not automatically cause people to live right and worship right. But you can rest assured that you cannot truly live or worship right without knowing right things about God. 
And this psalm blatantly teaches the unbreakable connection between knowing God appropriately and serving Him rightly. You cannot, you cannot break those two things. You have to know God rightly so you can serve God rightly. There is an unbreakable connection. And I pray it will be clear to you today and that it will transform your life into one of thankful and holy worship and service before God. When you, let me just break it down and, and make it like it says in this psalm. When you do theology... If you do it cold-heartedly, just trying to gain a bunch of head knowledge, then you're going to fail. But if you do theology and you're trying to know God from a heart that is overwhelmed with this God who has atoned for your sins in Christ, you're going to do it with thanksgiving and love. And it's not going to make you just some heady, high-minded nerd that all they can do is argue with everybody on Facebook. No, what it's going to do is it's going to make you somebody that passionately loves the Lord and serves others. Because to know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to serve Him. That's the way it works. If you love Him without knowing Him, then you're going to be all over the place. You serve Him without loving Him or knowing Him, you're going to be all over the place. But if you know Him first, you're going to fall in love with Him. And if you fall in love with Him, you're going to serve Him with a heart of gratitude. And that's just all there is to it. And then this, that word of warning that I've already mentioned, a stern and frightful word of warning comes in verse 22 with God threatening to tear into pieces those wicked covenant breakers who have forgotten Him. This is still the terrible, majestic judge of all the earth. They may have forgotten Him and thought their wicked lives bore no consequences, but God has not forgotten their wicked acts. And will bring his wrath upon them if they do not turn from their wicked ways. And if you think that the God of the New Testament is any different, read the book of Revelation. This is a fearful reminder of the dread majesty of this great judge we are introduced to at the beginning of the psalm. And finally, the final verdict. He caught the judge who has called this court in the session now offers his final verdict. Verse 23 echoes verse 14 and 15. The one who offers sacrifice, offers rather thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Right? Uh, verse uh, 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The same, they must both keep the covenant with thankfulness. Otherwise, their lip service or their faithfulness in offering sacrifices is meaningless. And this is the problem. It, they, they, it wasn't that they weren't doing it. It was that it was meaningless. Verse 14, 15, and 23 reveal what God truly wants from His covenant people is for them to acknowledge His provision with thankful hearts and live a life of purity before Him so He may show His salvation to them. And so this final verdict, he says, offer thanksgiving. The call is for the covenant people of God to acknowledge that their sacrifices and covenant commitments have been given to them by this almighty God who graciously entered a covenant with them and made provision for their sin. He has made provision for them to be reconciled to him and to maintain a relationship with him 
through the terms of the covenant. Therefore, they should keep the covenant with thankfulness, not ignorantly going through the motions or wickedly giving lip service while living a life of disobedience. And this, this instructs us who are the new covenant people of God to worship and serve thankfully and cheerfully, not with superficial lip service or with a begrudging legalistic attitude. God, listen, God in the new covenant has entered a covenant with us by sacrifice, but not our sacrifice, but by his sacrifice, Christ on our behalf. We ought to serve and sacrifice for him then with thankfulness and joy. The next verdict is order life rightly. God wants his covenant people to walk in his ways. This is consistent with the call in verse 14. Fulfill your vows to God. Their lives should be structured by God's covenant with them and their commitment to it. God commands them to live thankfully, but also to live holy. A thankful life to God is a holy life before God. The call to holiness is not alleviated in the new covenant. All throughout the New Testament, the call to holiness remains. However, we are not living holy that we may live as was the case in the old covenant. I I want you to note something here. Note, and I'm almost done. I want you to note uh, how the order in the New Testament is reversed from the order in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So offer thanksgiving... Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and order your way rightly and you will see the salvation of God. But the new covenant is reversed, isn't it? We see the salvation of God first. Isn't that right? We we see the salvation of God and then what do we do? As a response to having seen the salvation of God, we order our life rightly and we worship the Lord with a heart of thanksgiving and gladness. Isn't that right? That's the way that it works. We have seen the salvation of God in Christ. We are united with Christ in his life and death. And then we are called to live out that reality as we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And this is the New Testament pattern over and over and over again. And I've said it 400 times and I will say it 400 more times if you'll put up with me saying it. The indicative always precedes the imperative in the New Testament. That is what is the indicative, what is true about us, always in Christ, always comes before the command of how we ought to live in Christ. So this is the cup. You have seen the salvation of the Lord, and so live out your salvation. Christ has stood in the covenantal courtroom. Listen, this is the good news, because we stood in that courtroom, and we were judged not only as covenant breakers, but as those who were not even a part of the covenant. We were wicked, breaking His covenant, and we were not even a part of the covenant, but Christ stood in the covenantal courtroom on our behalf, and he has borne the judgment of God for all of our meaningless service and all of our covenant breaking. What a motivation to live a life of meaningful worship and service to him. Christ has defeated every sin. 
Beloved, if you do not, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, can I tell you that Christ is the only one who has borne the judgment of God for your sin? He is your only hope of salvation. You stand guilty before the judge of all of the earth who says that I will tear apart those who break my covenant. But the good news is that Christ has borne the sin and judgment of God on your behalf if you believe in Him. And so my, my plea is to the unbeliever, please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, see the salvation of God. His command for them to live holy and thankful lives is not because He needs them but because He desires to show His salvation to them. I, I want you to know me in a, in a saving way. God desires to receive the glory from His people by saving them from their troubles. This is, this is behind His command for them to keep the I want to reveal my glory by saving you. He wants them to purely and truly keep His covenant so He can reveal His salvation to them. And as I've said already, we have seen the salvation of the Lord. He has shown it to us clearly in Christ. Therefore, in all our worship and service to Him, we rest. We rest in the Christ of our salvation. Jesus, as He walked the earth, says, or said, Come unto me all who labor under a heavy burden. And find rest for your souls. Do you, do you hear that? He then says to take the yoke, the light yoke, an easy burden of learning from Him. Learning of His meekness and lowliness. And in doing so, we find rest. The more we learn of Christ, the more joyfully, the more easily we bear the yoke. Of the new covenant. And I've, I've, thought, I've thought about this. Just as a, a kind of another point of application. I will say generally. When I find service to the Lord. To be a begrudging laborious task. It's because I have forgotten of his provision. For me in Christ. There's something that I'm not resting in. Somehow or another, I think that God is like me. Somehow or another, I think that I'm supplying God something that He needs with my preaching. Instead of just saying, Lord, you knew how stupid I was when you called me. And, and, and I rest in that. And I just want to be faithful in that. I just want to be faithful and serve you. Now I'm serving out of a heart of rest. I've taken the, yes, it's a yoke. Yes, I bear it. But what makes it easy and light is that I have learned of Christ and I rest in Him. Are you weary from service to the Lord? Rest in Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. How meaningful it is to see the salvation of God so clearly in Christ that to offer worship and service to Him is a thankful task. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. I pray that it has been revealed to us in Christ, that that, that, that truth, the reminder of that truth has, 
has weighed down heavily upon us and this, upon us as your people here today. And not only, Lord, that we will go forth and say, wow, thank goodness for what Christ has done, what God has done for us in Christ. But, Lord, that it will drive us with a renewed fervor and refreshed heart to serve you, Lord, in, in all of the ways that you have gifted us and equipped us to serve you. And we pray it, Lord, not because we think we deserve it, because you are the, you are the one that deserves all the glory. But we pray it in Christ's name. And we say, Lord, in Christ's name.